Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to the service. There's a few friends who are gathering in. Maybe we'll sing a couple, uh, couple of hymns just while they're gathering in. And the first one is 470, if you want to turn it up in the book. Um, when you feel weakest, dangerous surround, subtle temptations, troubles abound, nothing seems hopeful, nothing seems glad, all is despairing, even time sad. And we'll sing the first and the last verse of 470, please. singing very well. I've turned to 158 if you want to in the hymn book. Thank you Jesus, thank you Jesus, thank you Lord for loving me. Thank you Jesus, thank you Jesus, thank you Lord for loving me. I'm going to sing the first and the last verse again please of 158.
I think that's us well warmed up, and uh, we'll start our, our meeting proper now by turning to 274. It's lovely to see you in tonight. If there's any visitors with them, we'll make you feel very welcome, hopefully, and you'll feel the warmth of our welcome here. And if you're listening online, hopefully you'll be encouraged and blessed by what you hear tonight. So we'll sing 274. Let us sing of his love once again, of the love that can never decay, of the blood of the Lamb who was slain, till we praise him again in that day. Standing to sing, please.
Well, thank you for singing so well. Now we can settle ourselves down a wee bit and we'll bow our heads and open our meeting in prayer and leave it, leave it with the Lord. Our gracious God and eternal loving Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this Sunday evening when we'll be found in your house once again, Lord. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful privilege it is to come into your, to your house, Lord, to fellowship with other believers, Lord, and to gather around your word and hear and try to understand what you're saying to us, Lord. Lord, we thank you for the pastor that is here today, Lord. We thank you for, for David Moore, Lord. We thank you for the testimony that he's going to share with us tonight, Lord. Lord, we think that many of us here have a testimony, Lord, where we can share with one another the wonderful mercy that you showed upon us when you saved, saved us, Lord, from sin and from eternal damnation, Lord. Lord, as we hear those testimony tonight, Lord, we pray, Lord, that... Uh, some soul here, some soul listening in online, whether it be a young person or an older person, Lord, that again, Lord, that their their heart will be turned towards you, Lord, that they will come to that realization, Lord, that you are the only answer in their lives, Lord. And we pray that that will happen tonight, Lord. And we pray for the young people that are gathered in tonight as well, Lord. We thank you for each and every one of them, Lord. But we pray that you will bless them, Lord. We know what a tough place it is to be a Christian nowadays, Lord, Lord, and with exams going on and all the different stresses that they have at this time, Lord, we pray that you will be with them, Lord. Lord, they will know your presence, Lord, and all that they do as they take their stand for you. Lord, we know that there's many in our congregation tonight, Lord, that are unwell, Lord, and uh, they they are struggling, Lord, whether it be physically or mentally, Lord, and again, Lord, we pray that you will draw close to them, Lord. Lord, you will be all to them that they need, Lord. They will have a real sense of your presence, Lord, at this time, Lord, that you will draw close and they will know that you are with them, Lord. Lord, as we were praying tonight in the prayer meeting earlier on, Lord, about the situation in Ukraine, Lord, how it is getting quieter on the media, Lord, we pray for that situation there, Lord. Lord, we know you have churches out there and organizations out there, Lord, who are faithful to your word, Lord, and they are caught up in this awful situation, Lord, we pray that you will continue. To step in there, Lord, sometimes we don't understand the full circumstances. We don't understand why, Lord, but, Lord, you are in control, Lord, that you maketh kings and you taketh kings away, Lord. And we pray that uh, you will be all to them that they need at this, this time, Lord. So, Lord, be with us tonight as we further on around your word, Lord, and continue to bless it. For it's in your name we ask it. Amen. Now, it's a pleasure to have James with us tonight. And James is going to come and bring his first two pieces, please. to be with you. Just two seconds. strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. 
My name is written on his hands. My name is graven on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. To look on Him and pardon me. Lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with himself I cannot die, my soul is purchased by his blood, my life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. One with himself I cannot die, my soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and Majesty, her 
worship you, love eternal, faithful and true, who bought the nations, ransomed souls, brought this sinner near to your throne, all within me cries out in praise your majesty I can but bow I lay my all before you now in royal rows I don't deserve I live to serve your majesty, your majesty, I can but bow, I lay my all before you now, in royal realms that I don't deserve, I live to serve. Your majesty, I live to serve. Your majesty, I live to serve. Your majesty. James Fraud, thank you for singing so well. Last brand to come bring the necessary announcements, please. Red extended. Oh, there we go. Uh, can I add my welcome to that already extended by Paul? We do appreciate your support this evening. So whether you're with us in the hall here or whether you're listening in online. We welcome you and trust indeed the Lord uh, will bless our time together. A special welcome back to our brother, Pastor David Moore. We appreciate David's ministry this morning. Uh, we thank him for being willing to share his testimony for us uh, this evening. Also, thank you to James Gailey. James, we really appreciate your ministry. Lovely pieces and beautifully sung. We thank you again for your help this evening. And the meetings the incoming week, Tuesday night, 8 p.m., is the annual Ladies Fellowship Rally. Their speaker is Vi Dawson. Again, can encourage you, ladies, if you're free on Tuesday night, please come out and encourage others along and invite others into that. And again, there's a list in the foyer if you can help uh, with catering. Then Wednesday night, our midweek prayer meeting, just the last of the month, will be in just a time of prayer, a meeting at 8pm for around an hour. Then Thursday morning, 10.30, is our tiny tots. Uh, then next Lord's Day, 10.15 in the morning, the Sunday School and the Bible class serves 11.30 and 6.30 as always, preceded by times of prayer. I can encourage you, if you're free, even to join with us that little season of prayer before the meetings. And the speaker all day is Pastor Lawrence Kennedy, and the singer expected in the evening is Stephen Anderson. And then just again to remind uh, the young people that they meet after the 
for the gospel service next Sunday evening and our brother Paul Muir will be speaking to them. We're keeping Paul busy. So he was in the children's talk this morning, leading tonight and speaking next week. I think he's getting comfortable up there, so he is, you know. But uh, we do thank. There's a number of people that are leading meetings and doing things. Maybe not the most comfortable thing for them to do, but willing to go out of their comfort zone and do that. And we, we thank you them for that. And I trust you appreciate them um, being willing to do that as well. There's a number of announcements I'll not, this morning that I'll not include, but just one additional one. Uh, it's from the Points Pass Church, where David comes from. They're having a youth rally on Saturday the 13th of May. That's with Creation Ministries. And say it's in Point Pass Baptist Church, and the two subjects are looking at two o'clock as a creation or evolution. What do Scripture and science say? And then three twenty, uh, racism, science, and the Bible, and that's for all teens and twenties. There's also an important note: is that light lunch is served uh, from one fifteen. So that's for the teens and twenties. That's Saturday the thirteenth. There's a number of these wee flyers uh, in the foyer. I'd maybe hand a few of them out. Maybe you're going out this evening, but please keep that in mind. I think that's all the announcements. Always made subject to the Lord's will. Okay, we'll ask James to come and sing his third, please. Okay, thank you. Father's plan unfold 
bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Come behold the wondrous mystery slain by death the God of life, but no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance, how unwavering our hope. Christ in power, resurrected as we will be when he comes what a foretaste of deliverance how unwavering our hope christ in power resurrected as we will be when he Thank you, James, for those wonderful pieces sung tonight. Uh, to change our positions, uh, we'll sing 405 in our hymn just before David comes to speak to us. What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. I have light in my soul for which long I had sought since Jesus came into my heart. Standing to sing, please. Jesus. 
it's good singing tonight, and I trust tonight that the Lord Jesus has come into your heart, that you have indeed believed upon him for eternal life. But if you haven't tonight, well, we're glad that you're here, and we trust the Lord will bless you tonight as you listen in to my own personal story and how I came to know the Lord Jesus as my Savior. Again, I want to thank the oversight here for the very kind invitation to come and the opportunity to come uh, and just to say that it's always a pleasure and a joy uh, to be among you here at St. Field. Well, I want to begin by reading a scripture with you, Romans chapter 10, if you would, Romans chapter 10, and we're going to begin reading in verse 9 down to verse 13, Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious and eternal word. Well, I was brought up in North Belfast. I was brought up in a nominally Presbyterian household. My uh, Mom and Dad both belonged to the Presbyterian Church, but neither one of them uh, seriously attended it, not even at Christmas time or Easter or any other occasion that I can particularly remember. Uh, but they did send myself and my two brothers uh, out to Sunday school uh, at the Presbyterian Church each Sunday morning. And I think that was more for their benefit than for ours. I think their hope was that they could have a lie-in and we would be off for an hour or two and leave them to it. Uh, but my brothers and I went off, and uh, we would be in the Sunday school, and in time, uh, we each one joined the boys' brigade. And uh, I liked the boys' brigade. Uh, I enjoyed it, particularly when I was in the junior section of the boys' brigade. I was very keen uh, on all of the activities, enjoyed playing football, and enjoyed the time uh, with the other boys and the leaders. But you go from, at least you used to, I don't know if the Boys Brigade still works this way, I presume it does, that you went from the junior section into the company section, and uh, we moved up into the uh, company section. And uh, I certainly enjoyed the first year or so in the company section also. Uh, But the one thing that I didn't particularly enjoy in the Boys Brigade was drill. You know, the marching. And that's because I wasn't very good with my left and my right, I must confess. I was a little bit dyslexic when it came to direction. And so, uh, you know, they would say, you know, left turn and I would turn right or whatever. And uh, the, uh, the BB leader there was not impressed with my lack of marching skills. And uh, he, he, on one particular evening, he decided to make an example of me. And uh, he came across the hall. I don't know what I had done, how I had I'd missed the instruction, whatever it was. And he came across the uh, church hall and he took a hold of my locks and he pulled me right up onto my tippy toes till my eyes were watering. And he marched me around the hall like a prize pony. And then put me back in line again. And I remember in that moment deciding 
that I was done with Boys Brigade. That was me finished as far as I was concerned. And so I was about probably about 13, 12, 13 years of age at this point in time. And so I went home to my parents and I said to my mom and dad, listen, you know, would you mind if I didn't go to church and if I didn't go to the BB Bible class and to the Boys Brigade? I just don't really find it enjoyable anymore and I'd rather not be going along. And they were both happy enough. You know, neither one of them was a Christian. The Bible wasn't an open book in our house necessarily, and prayer wasn't heard in our house particularly. And, and so they didn't mind. They said, son, you're of age. You can do whatever you want to do. If you don't want to go to church, don't go to church. And if you don't want to go back to the boys' brigade, well, that's fine by us. And so that's what I did. And uh, I left church. I left behind the boys' brigade. And I did what many young people do in society. I began just to hang out with my other uh, teenage friends and uh, just generally messing around the neighborhood, making a nuisance of yourself from time to time, uh, but just enjoying life as teenagers do and uh, not really taking much time to think about God or church or Christianity or any of those things. And I was caught up in my own little world. And uh, I began uh, at about the age of 13 or so to get really interested in music, in rock music, and uh, I, at that year, and I think it was that year, 76, there about 75, um, Queen, the rock group Queen, uh, had a number one hit with Bohemian Rhapsody, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was, that, I forget how long that was number one for, but it was many, many weeks. And I really loved that song, and I really enjoyed it as a young person. And I began to get more and more into rock music into the music of uh, Queen. And I don't know if you've ever listened to the lyrics of that song, but in the middle of the song, Freddie Mercury says, he sings Bishmilah, and uh, he then says, Beelzebub has a devil put aside for me. And, uh, you know, Bishmilah is a term for Allah. I didn't know that at the time, uh, but here I was being introduced uh, by the back door to Islam in a way. And I certainly... Uh, didn't think much about the line, Beelzebub has a devil set aside for me. But that certainly was the case. Beelzebub, Satan, did have a devil uh, set aside for me. And, and one, of the, one of the albums that I bought, uh, I listened to a song. It was called Great King Rat. And uh, in the midst of that song, Freddie Mercury uh, shouts at the top of his voice, don't believe everything you read in the Bible. And so I began to question whether indeed I should believe anything that was written in the Bible. And I began to have an antipathy toward Christians and toward the Bible and church people in general, and just felt like the whole thing wasn't worth my time or attention. And so I continued down that vein, just hanging out with my friends, listening to my rock music, and just taking uh, some, something of a stand. I mean, not a very serious stand, but, but taking a, a, an, an opposing view uh, to all things Christian. Well, 1977 came along. seems like a long time ago now. But uh, 1977 was the year of the Queen's Silver Jubilee. Of course, last year we celebrated her Platinum Jubilee. Uh, but that was the year of the Queen's Silver Jubilee. And as you can imagine, if you weren't around at the time, much the same as what you saw last year. A lot of national celebration, a lot of focus on the royal family and on the Queen in particular. And, of course, beacons were lit around the country, and the Queen came down Belfast Lock uh, in her boat and, uh, and all the rest of it. And around that time, there was a scandal that uh, arose in the world of rock music. 
and that was because a group by the name of the Sex Pistols had released a song entitled God Save the Queen. And it was derogatory about the Queen and the royal family in general. And uh, because it was the Queen's Silver Jubilee year, it drew a lot of attention in the press. And the consequence of that was that the BBC uh, decided that they would ban this particular song from the airwaves. It wouldn't be played on Radio 1 or any other uh, radio network of their, uh, under their umbrella. And so as a young person, you know, I just was curious. I just thought, well, what is that about? And I wanted to hear this song that had been so banned. And uh, so I went and I got a copy of it and I listened to the song. And I must confess, I absolutely loved it. I just loved the energy. I loved the anger. I loved the raw sound of it. It just really appealed to me as a young person. Uh, it, just, it just hit all the right notes. And uh, it brought me down the line of punk rock music. And I got really into punk rock music. Now, punk rock music was just taking off at this point. Really, the Sex Pistols uh, were the group that was, uh, are cited as being the beginning of, uh, of the uh, movement of punk rock. And so I got into punk rock music, began to go to punk rock con- concerts, uh, used to dress, obviously, in keeping with those uh, who were punk rockers. Uh, I would act as a punk, you know, used to do all kinds of things that would be shocking for adults around you. And, uh, you know, you'd behave in a certain way that was not socially acceptable, even now, I would say, in some respects. And, uh, you know, uh, I would get abuse from uh, old men on buses sometimes because uh, when I would dress up, I would have a, an SS armband on my arm, a real genuine uh, swastika, or SS armband, sorry, that I purchased uh, at a military shop in Smithfield Market, Smithfield Market in Belfast. And, and, you know, I didn't think about it. I didn't, you know, we weren't that far on from the war generation. And I would just get on the bus and sometimes there'd be old soldiers on there and they would be, you know, giving you all kinds of looks and abuse and all the rest of it. But it was water off a duck's back because I, I was, I was, that was what I was about. I was looking to shock people. I was looking to make a statement to, uh, you know, just to basically make my mark in the world. And so that's basically how I was behaving. And uh, I remember on one occasion that uh, I, I found a, an old vest, an old holy vest in a bin. And I pulled it out of the bin and thought, well, this will be great. I'll wear this. And so I wore this holy vest. I had a pair of uh, khaki trousers that were zipped and uh, safety pins all down them, chains and all of that stuff. I had my hair spiked up and wore these little bright orange kitties glasses, would you believe? And uh, this vest, which was stinking. Dear knows who had it before I had it. It was never washed, certainly. It was filthy. There was, you know, it had been ripped. But it served my purposes beautifully. And uh, I remember going out to a concert one evening dressed like that. I can't remember which group it was I was going to see. But I was going to a concert dressed just like that. Thought it was the best. And my mom looked at me and says, you're not going out the front door looking like that. And I said, well, I've got to go to this concert. She says, well, you're not going out that front door. I won't have the neighbors talking about me. You're going out dressed like that. She says, you can go out the back door. <laughs> so I went out the back door. Now, we lived on the suburbs of Belfast on the Ballycillan. So right out the back of our house was just fields. And so I had to go out the back door, over the back wall, and down the, down the glen, as we called it, out onto the Ballycillan Road to get the bus to this concert. You know, in keeping with that kind of lifestyle and that kind of genre of music, I became rebellious 
uh, was, you know, was, was everything, every parent's nightmare, I should imagine. Lost interest in school, didn't care less about school. I uh, was only concerned about music, loved music, loved punk rock music. And uh, I remember my dad used to give me many a lecture about my schooling and how I was wasting my education and wasting my brains. He obviously thought I had brains. And, uh, and so he was, he was uh, taking me aside, he'd give me these you know, great lectures about this. And I would say to him, Dad, don't worry about it. Someday, I'd say, my name is going to be up in lights. I don't need school. I'm going to be a rock star someday. Someday, my name will be up in lights. And he would just, you know, he'd just roll his eyes. And he would look at me with the pity of a parent who thinks to himself, I have spawned the stupidest child in the world. And so he would just look at me with complete despair as to, you know, what am I to do with this agent of a son? Uh, but anyway, you know, things went on, progressed. I hung out with other young people who felt the same way about life and about music as I did. And we decided to form our own punk rock band. And we did. And I played the drums in that band. Uh, we called it the Nauseators. And we were rather nauseating. Uh, we couldn't play a note between us. But in punk rock in the early days, you didn't have to play a note. All you had to play was one chord. If you can play one chord, you were up and running. And so we had a guitarist who was tremendously proficient. I think he could play two chords. And, uh, and, and we, uh, we got up and running. And we ended up, we'd play at the local youth group uh, in, in our area. And eventually we uh, wound up in the harp bar in Belfast, which was the center of punk rock music. Uh, at that time, it was a, a strip joint in the day, and it was a punk rock venue in the evening. And it was a real dive of a place. It was filthy, it was dark, uh, and as you can imagine, it was full of lots of young people who were just like ourselves, rebellious, and you know, who were just consumed with the things uh, of punk rock and so on. But interestingly, it was this very uh, connection that was going to introduce me to the gospel. You say, well, how did that happen? The singer in our band was a fellow by the name of Alistair Whiteside. Uh, Alistair Whiteside I always describe as kind of like a mini version of the Incredible Hulk. Uh, he was built like a tank. He was a big build on him. Uh, he had bright orange hair, uh, just, by, just naturally he had ginger hair. It was as bright as you could possibly imagine. And he always wore a lime green t-shirt and lime green tight trousers. And on his muscular frame with his orange hair, he always reminded me of the Incredible Hulk. Uh, but he was an interesting character. And Alistair lived with his grandmother. Now, the reason he lived with his grandmother is his father had died in a tragic accident in Londonderry. And uh, his mother had remarried someone. And she had moved to Canada with her new husband. And she had left him at her home in Belfast in the charge of her grandmother. Her grandmother was a lady by the name of, or his grandmother was a lady by the name of uh, Alice Gillespie. Now, when I mention the name of Alice Gillespie, I always conjure her up in my mind because uh, I want you to understand, Alice Gillespie was a Christian lady. She was a Pentecostal lady. Uh, but I want you to envisage her because if you're familiar uh, with the, the uh, Tweety Bird cartoons, remember the Tweety Bird cartoons? where there was little granny and a Tweety Bird and Sylvester the cat. If, if you don't remember that, you're too young. Uh, but, you know, if you can remember that, there was a little granny in that particular cartoon series. 
and she was very slight of frame, kind of bent over a little bit, had a little bun in her hair, her hair was all pulled back, a little bun in the back of her head, and she had quite a squeaky voice. And that was uh, Alice Gillespie. And so the Lord brought Alice Gillespie into our lives for a particular uh, reason. Uh, We would practice, as I say, if punk rockers indeed do practice, we would make a noise in the garage of their home, of her home. And about 10 o'clock each evening, Alice would come out and she would say, right boys, supper time. Now I think what she was doing was just shutting us down because we were making such a racket and she didn't want to disrupt her neighbours. But she would say, that's it lads, you know, it's supper time, why don't you come out, I've made you some supper. And so we would go into the house, into the living room, and Alice would very kindly have made us some tea or coffee, and she would make some toast, and maybe there would be a scone or two or something like that. And she would come in, and she would set this meal before us each evening, and then she would, as we sat down to the meal, take out her Bible, and she'd begin to talk to us about the Lord and about the need to be saved. Now, you've got a picture of the scene. You've got four young punk rockers, and a 70-year-old grandmother in the midst of these rather intimidating characters because of the way we dressed and looked. You know, when we, came, when we walked down the street, very often people crossed to the other side, not because we would have actually done them any harm, but we looked more fearsome than we actually were. And, you know, we're sitting in, the, in this living room with this dear old lady, and she is getting her Bible out, and she is very bold in her witness. She's very blunt in her witness, uh, she would say things, I mean, outrageous things to my ears at the time. She would say, you fellas are off the devil, you're playing the devil's music, and you'll go to the devil's hell. And I used to think, well, why would I go to hell? You know, I'm a good person. Even punk rockers have their own righteousness. You know, I thought, well, I, you know, all I'm doing is enjoying my music. Why would I go to hell? Why would God send me to hell? And I couldn't understand her message. I just felt it was very extreme, very radical. Uh, and, you know, I had a difficulty accepting it. Uh, and, but she carried on. She would testify. She would talk about her relationship with the Lord. And uh, she would talk about uh, the rapture of the church. Now, this was a brand new thing to me. I had never heard of this doctrine called the rapture. And uh, if you're here and you've not heard that term, you're not familiar with that teaching, here's the, here's the, uh, the thing that was taught, and it's in Scripture. Uh, she taught me that any moment the Lord Jesus was coming back again, and that he would appear in the air, and that he would call to his side in a, in a sudden movement all those who are his, and they would be taken on to heaven to be with him, and on earth would begin seven years of great tribulation, during which time God would judge the world. And so she was looking forward to this because she was going to be with the Lord, but she would always end this little sermon with these thought, this thought, and you fellas will be left behind. If the Lord comes tonight, you're going to be left behind. And that was always how that little sermon ended. And you know, she had a point. The Bible is very clear about this. The Lord Jesus is indeed coming. First Thessalonians chapter 4 says this, For this we, uh, this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, Then we, believers, which are alive and remain on the earth, 
shall be caught up together with them, the Christian dead, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And Alice would point out the societal conditions of the time. She would point out how there were problems in the world. The Cold War was going on. The troubles were being fought out on the streets of Belfast and, uh, and around our province. And the world was in disarray, it seemed to me. And uh, certainly many of the things that she shared about the end at times rang true. But my goodness, if they rang true in 1977, let me tell you, we had no idea how bad things were going to become. And if you look at it today, friends, I honestly believe we're not that far from the coming of the Lord. And at any moment, the Lord is going to come. That trumpet's going to sound. And all who are saved will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And if you're not a Christian... You will be left behind, and you will face the tribulation uh, period. All of this that she taught seemed to align with what Jesus said and what he taught in the, uh, in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, where he talked about the signs of the times when his disciples said, when shall these things be, and, and what's the sign of your coming and of the end of the age, and, and the Lord Jesus gave uh, uh, numerous signs. He talked about false Christ wars, rumors of wars. He talked about nations rising against nations, famines, pestilence, earthquakes, uh, all of these things, anti-Semitism. All of these things are, are right there on the scripture. And they were around in 1977. But my goodness, how those signs have developed in the subsequent uh, years. I remember reading a book uh, by Dr. Tatford, uh, written in 1980, funny enough, called The Signs of the Times. And he was talking about one of the signs of the times being drug addiction. And uh, in that book, he gives this little statistic to support his, uh, his, uh, his thesis that we were close to the end. And he said this, there are now, there are now something like 3,000 drug addicts in the United Kingdom. Friends, if our government could get the drug addict problem down to 3,000, they'd be cock-a-hoop today. There are thousands of drug addicts in every major city and town right throughout this nation. And we have lost a whole generation to drug addiction and to, uh, and to pagan ideas and to ideas that are very foreign uh, to the word of God. So certainly we seem to be at that place uh, in, in our lives. Well, her message to me, as I say, was bold. She was very blunt, but her life was very real. And she knew the Lord. And, and, and sometimes she would say things that would kind of throw me. And one of the things she said one day, she came in and she just said, we're sitting there at tea with her, and she said, hey, I was talking to the Lord today. And I remember thinking, what do you mean you were talking to the Lord today? You know, I just, this was a foreign concept. Talking to the Lord, you know, what is wrong with you? And, uh, and of course, by that she meant that she had been praying. But such was her familiarity with her Savior that she spoke of him as though he were the postman or the milkman or, or some friendly face in the street. She said, well, you know, I was just talking to the Lord today and blah, blah, blah. And that phrase struck me. I was talking to the Lord today. And then one day she came in and she said this. David, she says, you know, the Lord spoke with me today. And she began to share what it was. And I thought, this lady's lost her marbles. It's one thing if she wants to talk to the Lord. It's quite something else for the Lord to talk to her. 
And what she meant was that she had been reading her Bible, and in the course of reading her Bible, God had spoke to her heart. And here is the thing that, that struck me most of all about Alice, is she was absolutely sincere. You see, I was growing up in the Troubles, and as many of you know, when the Troubles were ongoing, they were often pitched along a religious line. The idea was that it was Protestants fighting Catholics. In actual fact, the Troubles were more a political war and a war of identity than they were a war of religion. But because the division fell readily down those Protestant-Catholic lines, that's how this was pitched. And so I remember then looking out at the world and thinking to myself, well, you know, all these people are Christians, supposedly. Catholics are supposed to be Christians, and Protestants are supposed to be Christians, and they're all killing each other. And if that's Christianity, well, you can have it. I'll just do without it. Thank you very much. But Alice Gillespie came along and she kind of rocked my world in that regard. She began to show me that actually Christianity isn't about Catholicism. Christianity isn't about Protestantism. Christianity isn't about religion. Christianity is about knowing the Lord Jesus. And she began to speak to, about Christ and her relationship to Christ in those very familiar terms. And the thing that struck me is that she wasn't afraid to die. Now, that, that just blew my mind. Because here I was, at this point, I'm 17 years of age. Alice Gillespie is about 70 years of age. And, you know, when you're 17 and you're sitting down with somebody who's 70, you expect them to die like any second now. And so I was looking at her and thinking, she's going to die any minute now. And yet, she wasn't afraid of death. Wasn't remotely concerned about that. In fact, she was looking forward to being with her Lord. She was anticipating heaven. She was expectant, not only of her Lord to come, but if he should not come in her lifetime, that she would go on to be with him. And for her, that was far better. Now, she was 70 and excited, perhaps, by the prospect of going to be with Jesus. I was 17 and terrified by the thought of dying because I didn't know what death held for me. And so between her messages, her lifestyle, her testimony, I began to take some of the things that Alice said seriously. And I began to get concerned, concerned about the world around me. In fact, so concerned was I that the Lord might actually come any particular day. Now, when I got up in the morning... And I drew back the curtains of my bedroom. I would look out to check that everything was as it was the day before, before I went out. So I decided if there was like planes crashed or the sun was different or something, you know, then I'd know. But I was just alarmed that the Lord might come and that I might be uh, left behind. And so I decided one evening that I was going to discuss these matters with Alice alone. All this time, up to this time, the only discussions I had with her was with the other fellows. And it was, you know, when you're a teenager and you're with your peers, you're a bit of a show-off and you're kind of, you know, acting the maggot, as we would say, and you're playing around with them. And uh, very often she'd be witnessing to us, talking to us, and her grandson would be standing behind her wearing her glasses doing Buddy Holly impersonations. And we'd be laughing our heads off. But she began to get through, the message began to get through, and bless her, she just persisted and persisted and persisted. And so I decided one evening to get some Dutch courage. Now, if you don't know what Dutch courage is, that means you go out and you get a little bit drunk. Not so drunk that you're completely uh, out of your head, but drunk enough to where you can do some things that you might not otherwise do. And so I got a little bit drunk, 
and I decided I was going to go and visit Alice and ask her some questions and, uh, and put some objections to her. And so I said to her, you know, Alice, uh, the church is full of hypocrites. Now, why I would say that, I don't know, because I hadn't been to church for at least five years, and certainly I didn't have any uh, material evidence for that particular uh, uh, statement. But nevertheless, I came to her and I said to her, you know what, I would, I would get saved, I would join your church, but the church is full of hypocrites. And I thought she would become instantly defensive. And that she would try to say, no, 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 the church isn't full of hypocrites. Everybody in church is a saint. But instead she says, yeah, you're right, David. She says, there are a lot of hypocrites in the church. She says, tell you what, she says, why don't you get saved and show us how it's done? (laughs) I wasn't expecting that answer. Then I said to her, you know, Alice, if I believe what you told me, were telling me, and I were to trust Christ, I was to be saved. I would lose all my friends. You know, there's some of you tonight, here tonight, maybe young people, and you're afraid of standing up for Christ in case you lose your friends. I was there. I was afraid of losing my friends. And so I said to her, I would lose all my friends. And again, I thought her to, to be one who would just try and sell me salvation, sell me Christianity. And she would say, no, 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 you'll never lose your friends. You know, but actually she said, you're right, you'll lose all your friends. And I, again, I was kind of taken aback. And I was like, well, you know, Shouldn't you be trying harder to sell this to me? And she said, but the Lord will give you better friends. You will lose all your friends, but the Lord will give you better friends. Well, Alice's witness, by the grace of God, began to work on my heart. The Holy Spirit began dealing with me about my own soul's salvation, about where I would spend eternity, about my life and one evening I went round to her house to meet with my friend Alistair. And Alistair was very animated, very excited. He had just got a new record and he wanted me to hear it. It was by a group called Crass. Crass was a punk rock group, as you can imagine. Uh, their name means exceedingly stupid and that's exactly what they were. And so he played this song that he was very uh, excited about. And the song blasphemed the name of Christ in the most terrible way. It was the worst blasphemy I've ever heard in my life, nor indeed do I ever wish to hear anything like it again. But when I heard it, I felt like, well, I, it was like I had sung that lyric. It was as though I was part of that. You know, we were, we were paying to buy these records. We were paying to go to these concerts. We were contributing to this business. And I instantly knew that if God was to judge me at that moment, I would deserve to die and go to the devil's hell. I was following the devil. This was the devil's music. And I deserved to go to the devil's hell. And so I went home that evening, not at all excited about what I'd heard. I went home that evening very disturbed in my heart and mind about where my life was going and what God would do with me. And I got into my home. My father worked in the Belfast newsletter, so he was always out in the evenings on night shift, and my, my mom was in bed by the time I got home. There was no one in the house, and I just, in my own living room, got on my knees, and I asked the Lord to forgive me of my sin and to save my soul. And you know what? He did. He absolutely did. And it was, I knew in an instance that he had heard my prayer and life would never be the same. Now, here's the difficulty when you're a newly saved punk rocker and you're the drummer in a punk rock band. You have to decide what you're going to do about your punk rock band, don't you? 
And so I decided I ought to phone one of the other fellows in the group and tell them that I was no longer desirous to play drums for them. And so I weighed up which of the other three boys would take it best if I conveyed this news to them. And so I decided that the guy who played guitar, who was a lifelong friend, I'd known as his primary one, uh, Alan Ringland, I would call Alan and I would tell him that I was a Christian. And so I phoned him up and uh, Alan answered and I said, Alan, listen, I've got some news for you. I don't want to be in this band anymore. And uh, he said, well, why not? And I thought, well, now he's going to go ballistic. He's going to give me an earful here, but I'll go for it. And I said to him, well, Alan, to tell you the truth, I got saved tonight. I became a Christian. And I was, I was kind of held the phone away from my ear a little bit, waiting for him to scream at me. And, and he said, well, that's great. Praise the Lord. <laughs> and I was like, sorry. He says, that's great. Praise the Lord. He says, I became a Christian on Monday night. He says, I've been praying and asking the Lord to help me tell one of you other guys. <laughs> and so now he was saved and I was saved. And so we decided that two on two was a fair fight. And we went to see the other two boys and to tell them that we had gotten saved. And that was, that was fine. We worked all that out with them. The next morning I got up, I told my mom I was saved. Uh, I told her that I'd become a Christian that night. She wasn't at all impressed. Uh, in fact, she was quite distressed. Uh, she didn't quite understand what was going on. She called, uh, she, she told my dad during the day what had happened uh, and that what I told her. And then he went to work that evening and he called me from work. Now, my dad never would have called us from work, but he phoned the home from work and he, and, and he asked to speak with me. And I always remember this conversation. I answered the phone and my dad said, son, are you all right? And I said, yes, I'm all right. I says, I'm saved. And he says, but are you all right? I don't know what he was thinking, but I said, yeah, I'm, I'm fine, and, and that was okay. But then they decided that they, I should have a visit from the family minister. So they sent for the minister to come and visit me. Now, I always thought this was curious, because when I was a foul-mouthed, aggressive punk rocker, and I was making life miserable for them and everybody else around me, they never once thought to themselves, we should get the minister to come and talk to him. But as soon as I got saved, all of a sudden, I was a problem for the minister. And the minister came around, and bless him, he was a nice man, uh, very kindly spoken, but uh, he was not someone who preached the gospel, I later discovered. And so in my boldness as a young Christian, when he came to the house, I asked him outright if he was saved. And uh, he replied, well, you know, I believe a Christian is the, is the light of the world and the salt of the earth. That was his answer. And I deduced instantly, even as a young Christian, that he probably wasn't saved. Nevertheless, you know, I had to go to church, and his church was the church I belonged to. And so myself and Alan, who also belonged to that same church, decided we would go the next Sunday to the Sunday morning service. And we were both quite excited. We were new Christians. We came in. Now, you've got to bear in mind, we had no church clothes. If we were to come in here to St. Field, we would have sat out like a sore thumb. We came in, you know, it was hard to get your hair to stop springing up, right? So you had, you know, couldn't do much about that. I uh, had a little earring in, which at this, uh, now that doesn't shocking at all, but in 1977, that was considered horrendous. Uh, so I had a little earring in there. Uh, I came in uh, to the church. The only clothes I could find was an old T-shirt that I had, a white T-shirt. I had a leather jacket, which had nothing written on it. And, I, and the only pair of trousers I could find for church which weren't zipped or chained or ripped or written on in some way, 
was a pair of electric blue high boys, for those of you who remember high boys, which were the most horrendous trousers ever developed. Uh, if you don't know what high boys are, basically they had a big giant waistline about this thick that sat right up here, and uh, they were flared out about this far. And, and even in 1977, we were about three or five, four years out of date. And so we came into this church, I sat down, uh, we went up into the balcony, Alan and I sat down, and as we sat down, you could see people shuffling away from us. And we kept saying to them, you know, we're saved, I'm saved. <laughs> I think they thought that was our surname. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm saved. And uh, they just didn't relate to it at all. And so we thought that the, the minister would have his chance, he would get up and he would talk to people about being saved and about being a Christian and what it was to be born again. And, and uh, he got up and he talked about his holidays and he talked about his greenhouse and he talked about various other things around his home. But he did not say anything about the gospel. And I know Alan and I were new Christians, literally in the, in the first few days of our Christian life. We realized right off this was not the church for us. This was not the place that we could thrive or survive as believers. So we decided to go to a different church. And we went to Alice Gillespie's church. Now Alice was apostolic. And this was around Easter time. We, we got, I got saved 28th of March 1979. So this was about Easter time 1979. And Alice's church was holding some kind of Easter convention. Part of which was for young people. And she invited us along. And we went along to this church. And uh, on the platform, there was a man whom we were told was a prophet. And he was, he was speaking. His head was kind of cocked to one side. He had a big, deep voice. And he was declaring all these things. Thus saith the Lord this, and thus saith the Lord that. And uh, we, one man leaned forward, and he whispered in our ear that we were audibly hearing the voice of God. That's what he told us. You're actually hearing the voice of God speaking through this man. And, uh, you know, we sat there. We weren't very comfortable with it, neither he nor I. And uh, we said, one, one said to the other, you know, I don't like this. And the other one said, I don't, I don't like it either. And said, well, we go. And said, yes, let's go. And so we got up and we walked out. Now, later on in life, I reflected back on that moment. And I thought to myself, how do you think Moses would have fared at the top of Sinai? When the Lord spoke to him, if he'd have just said, you know what, I don't like this, I'm leaving. He wouldn't have got very far, would he? But we walked out of that church. Because clearly, whatever that man was, he wasn't a prophet of God. And that wasn't the voice of God. And so we went out into the street. We were in absolute, total despair as to where we were going to go to church. And then a few days later, Alan says, listen, my cousin attends a youth group at a Baptist church. Why don't we go there? And so we went along to this Baptist church in Belfast, and uh, we, we found a, a sizable youth group there. We went dressed exactly as we'd gone to the uh, church the uh, week or two before, and to our delight, the young people were very accepting. They were very glad to have us. They were thrilled to hear that we were saved. They were encouraging to us. And that's where I, I met my wife. I remember my wife was, was very helpful uh, Hazel, she, she gave me a great big pile of our daily bread devotionals that she had left over. And there, was a, there must have been a dozen or more. And she gave me these daily bread devotionals. And I was so hungry that I read them all in one sitting and didn't realize you're only supposed to read a page a day. And so after I'd, after I'd finished with them, I came back the next week and said, those are great of you anymore. <laughs> 
And she said, have you finished, have you finished with them already? I said, read all of those. Well, she didn't have any more. But I, I, that's where I met her. Uh, that's where we, you know, as I often say that's where I won her heart because I used to play with her in, in the youth group. The, after, the, after the youth meeting, they'd have a little board game time, and she and I would play Connect Four. And, uh, you know, I, I obviously had a shame for her. And uh, I was wanting to ask her out, but I hadn't quite the courage to ask her out. And so I said to her, tell you what, I says, I beat her every time. She wasn't very good at Connect Four. Uh, I beat her every time. And, uh, and, uh, and so I said to her this particular day, I tell you what, I says, we'll play one more game. And if you win, I'll take you out to dinner. And she said, okay. And so I let her win. <laughs> and I took her out to dinner. And that's how we ended up connecting over Connect Four. Well, we got married. Um, we had a child. And then uh, I went into, uh, into ministry. And the first ministry that I was involved in was in the city of Dublin, in a place called Tala, if you've heard of Tala. Uh, it's a rough part of the, the city of Dublin. Uh, in fact, it was so rough that people from North Belfast were, were telling us we ought not to go there. Um, but nevertheless, we went to, uh, went to Dublin, and I began to train for ministry while serving uh, in that church under a pastor, a church planter down there. And uh, I went on the promise. I had a job at this point. I was uh, about uh, 23 years of age at this point. And uh, I had a job. I was a draftsman. And uh, obviously we had a home and a mortgage and all of that. And we just had our first daughter. She was almost a year old. We made this move to Dublin in 1985. We went there on the promise of £100 a month of salary, which even in 1985 wasn't an awful lot of money. And uh, the very first meeting we got there, the church had, had a business meeting. They had just purchased a property. And they had a business meeting. And they decided that they couldn't afford to pay us £100 or pay me £100 a month. So they reduced it to £25 a month. And you know, you think to yourself, well, how in the world did you survive? I have no idea. But I know this. God took care of my needs. God met my needs. And he provided in the most amazing and miraculous ways. I'll give you one example. At one time, we were down to nothing. Our cupboards were absolutely bare. And uh, we had one little piece of bread in the bread bin, and we were looking at our daughter, and we said, well, you know, it's breakfast. We'll give her that bread for breakfast, and we'll see what, what the day brings. And so I, we, my wife made the toast for her and gave her a toast and a drink, and that was her breakfast that morning. We had nothing, literally nothing in our cupboards. And that afternoon, a man from church came and he knocked the door. And he says, I've got something for you. I said, you've got something for me? He says, yes. I said, what is it? He says, come here and I'll show you. And he went out to the boot of his car. And he opened the boot of his car and his boot was stuffed full of great big lumps of roast be- of beef. And he says, I want you to have this. And, and what it was, back then, the European Union had this food mountain. And they were distributing food throughout Europe. And uh, there were people who were allocated to bring this food to needy families. And he was one of those who was charged with that particular task. And he was going up this street. And the deal was that you only have to have, each home was only supposed to have two pieces of beef and two uh, tubs of butter. And that was it. That was your allotment. And so he was going up this street and he asked, was asking the people had they received their beef. And they said no. But then halfway up he met another worker who was also doing the same job. And it turned out that the people he had just asked if they'd had beef were lying, that they had had their beef, and now they were getting two more lumps of beef. So he says he sat down, and he prayed, and he said, Lord, who would you have me to give this beef to? 
And the Lord laid on his heart and said, give it to the pastor. And so he showed up at our house, literally with a boot full of beef. We filled our freezer with beef. For months on end, it was beef for breakfast and beef for lunch and beef for dinner. We were eating the best of beef. But the Lord was meeting our needs. And it was wonderful. And it taught me, as a preacher, that I am not not the employee of the church. I'm the servant of the Lord. That the grace of God led me to a place uh, and the goodness of God provided for me. The will of God led me.